Good morning again. Our sermon text for this morning comes from the book of Leviticus. Uh, if you've been here, been here with us for any amount of time, you know we've been working through the book of Leviticus for a number of months, and we are coming to the end. So this is 26. Next week we'll look at chapter 27, which is the last book, last chapter in the book of Leviticus. Sadly. Why do you laugh? Uh, so Leviticus 26. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles just on the door, uh, just on the table outside the door. You feel free to grab a Bible from there. And if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to grab it to use during the service, but you can take it, uh, write your name in it, take it home with you, uh, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. So Leviticus 26. Uh, before we read, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you uh, right now. We come to your word. We want to hear from you, our Father. We want you to speak to us. I pray that you would be with me as I speak, that you would help me to speak truth. I pray that you would be with those who hear, Father, that, uh, that they would only hear what is true, that uh, anything that is false or uh, untrue, that, that they would quickly forget that they would cling to the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning in all of his glory. Help us to trust in him more fully. Help us to draw near to him. Help us to rest in his saving work. Uh, work in us by the power of your spirit, Father, that your word would do its work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus 26. You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. The land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, 
and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and the earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the field, the trees of the land, shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts among you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste." Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your, in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword. And they shall fall when none pursues." They shall stumble over one another, as if to escape a sword, though none pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them, and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity, because they spurned my rules, and their souls abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly, and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord." These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. 
Now, having just read Leviticus 26, the, the title of this morning's sermon may seem a bit out of place. I mean, this isn't a passage that, that reeks of the Father's love at first sight. But the more I, I read this passage this week, the more I studied it and thought about it, uh, the more I realized that, that that is ultimately what this passage is all about. Our outline this morning spells, spells that out a little bit. You can see our outline on the back of your bulletin. Uh, there are four points on the outline this morning. The first is that we live in the Father's house. The second, that we long for the Father's presence. The third, the Father disciplines those he loves. And the fourth, that repentance is always an option. So we're going to, look, we're going to talk about God as our, our Father this morning. And I realize that uh, some of you might not want to think about God as your father. Uh, maybe your dad was a horrible dad. Maybe your dad uh, was absent. Maybe he was abusive. But you know that he was a horrible dad because you know that dads are not supposed to act like that. And as we think about Leviticus 26 this morning, I, I want you to hear about a dad ultimately who loves his kids. Maybe this is in contrast to your own dad. Maybe not. But here's a picture of a father who relentlessly pursues his children, even if his love at times is what we would call tough love. Now, calling God father is a metaphor, right? Uh, which means that, that there's not a precise one-to-one between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. But it's an important metaphor throughout the scriptures. Uh, God calls Israel his firstborn son, which, of course, makes God their father. Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our Father in heaven. Scripture says God is the Father from whom are all things. And God is called the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The fatherhood of God is is pretty important in in the biblical worldview, in the teaching of the Bible. So that's what we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at the fact that we live in the Father's house. Now, if I were to put this uh, sort of more philosophically or impersonally, uh, I might say something that, that like we live in a, a personal, moral universe, right? And many people don't think that's true, right? We believe that the universe is kind of just this impersonal, uh, amoral place, um, that there's no right or wrong to our behavior, uh, maybe better or worse for certain ends, but of course there's no objectively good ends. The world just is. It's not a moral place. But I think on some level, we all know that that's not true, right? I I think most of us accept, even as a general rule of thumb, you know, some call it karma, some call it justice, that if you live an immoral life, in the end, it will come back to bite you. If I cheat and steal and lie, if, if I always fight and I'm unfaithful to my wife, if I'm lazy at work, if I beat my children, right, there, there are going to be consequences to my actions. Now, that, that, doesn't always pan out, of course, right? I mean, sometimes incredibly immoral people seem to thrive and are on top of the world, and sometimes incredibly moral people seem to suffer. But in general, we see that there is what the Bible calls a a sowing and reaping principle to life, right? That uh, the Bible affirms, right, that that there's a, a personal moral God who built a personal sort of moral universe where one reaps what one sows, That's obvious in nature, you reap what you sow, but of course the Bible teaches that that's a moral principle as well. 
Now, now the exceptions, and, and the ex there are significant exceptions, right? But the exceptions don't negate that, that rule of thumb. You know, one reaps what he sows. At some point, justice seems to take over. Those who do good tend to be rewarded for their well-doing. Those who do evil tend to suffer for it. It's not an absolute, but it is a tendency that we can note in life. And implied in that is the idea that, that the universe is, is personal. You know, moral laws require a lawgiver. If the world were only material, uh, there's no good, there's no bad, there's no right, there's no wrong. A stone is neither good or evil. Right or wrong necessitates personhood. This is, of course, what Christians believe, uh, uh, that there is a God, a personal God, who made the universe, whose very character determines right from wrong. And when we come to Leviticus 26, uh, we're going to hear some beautiful promises for those who do good and some horrifying threats for those who do wrong. And this, this builds on sort of the general nature of the universe. It builds on the way life works. And yet at the same time, it goes beyond that. God in Leviticus 26 is not simply promising, hey, if you study hard, right, you'll do better come exam time. Right? That's, that's not what God is saying in Leviticus 26. While the sowing and reaping principle is built into the world as we know it, God enters into a particular relationship with particular people. He makes them particular promises and particular threats. That's what we see here in Leviticus 26. God has a relationship with a people, Israel. He's been working that out. If you, read, uh, if you started in Genesis and, and had been reading throughout, you'd see that God called a particular person, Abraham, to be his people and Abraham's children. And then he called a particular people, Israel, the children of Abraham. He brought them out of Egypt. He cared for them. He provided for them. God gave them a law. He told them, this is how I want my children to live. And now God is giving them the, the rewards and the punishments that come from breaking that law. There is a personal God who enters into a relationship with his people. God is a father who has house rules. Right? He wants his kitties to get along. He wants his house to be a place of peace and joy. And so he says, here's how I want you to act in my house. If you don't, these will be the consequences. Now, now pause here for just a second, right? I mean, do you, do you think that way about the world, right? Do you, do you know that the reason the world uh, works the way the world works is because there is a good God who made this world? Do you know this, this personal God personally, right? Uh, do you know that, that this good God is, is a father? Do you know him as a father? That is, as one who, who gives life who provides, who protects. See, there's a sense in which God is a father of us all. I mean, God made us all, right? He made everyone. So Paul, in Acts 17, he gives his consent to the, to the thought that we are God's offspring, everyone, right? God made us. But there is a special sense in which God is a father to Israel here. When God is bringing them out of Egypt, God said, let my son go. All the nations belong to God, right? But Israel alone is called God's son, his child. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus teaches his followers to address God as father. And essentially, Jesus is teaching that, that it's, the, it's the new birth, right? Not our physical birth, but our spiritual birth that, that makes God our father. Do you know God as father? 
Do you think about the universe as the Father's house? When you look around, do you reflect, this is my Father's world? We live in the Father's house, right? This is His world. Two, we long for the Father's presence. Israel longed for a return to Eden, a return to paradise. The description of the blessings here in in Leviticus 26 uh, describe Eden, describe paradise. So verses 4 and 5 describe this Edenic abundant fruitfulness, right? The the trees of the field will yield yield their fruit. The, the, your threshing shall last at, to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of, uh, for sowing, right? You're, you're going to be gathering so much food. You're going to still be gathering food from the last harvest when you have to start the next one, right? There's going to be so much fruit. Verses 6 to 8 describe a paradise-like peace, right? a safety, protection from harmful beasts, protection from their enemies, Verse 9 talks about Israel being fruitful and multiplying, that is, having children, which is the language God uses about Adam and Eve's role in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1. Then we have verses 11 and 12. God says, I will make my dwelling among you, my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. See, God promises his special presence. He will walk among them just like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Ultimately, it is God's presence, of course, that makes Eden paradise. The same is true for for any home, right? And at the risk of sounding like a greeting card, it's the people that make your house your, your home. If the people aren't there, it's just not the same. Longing for Eden, longing for paradise, is, is really a longing for the Father's presence. God is promising his people here in Leviticus that if they obey, he's promising them a return to paradise, or at least paradise-like conditions, a return to the Father's presence, a return to the Father's embrace. Now, now Christians, too, long for this, right? God is promising Israel this here in Leviticus 26. Christians long for this. The New Testament talks about this. The book of Revelation, you may know, describes the Christian hope of a new creation. A time when we will dwell with God, without danger, without harm, in a place of provision and plenty and peace. That's our hope. Our hope is that one day we will dwell with our Father when He renews this world. We will see Him face to face. I, I think on some level, everyone longs for this return. You know, whether you believe the Bible or not, uh, this passage, Leviticus 26, bears witness to this universal human longing. That that universal human longing, of course, is seen in in all kinds of uh, utopian visions, right-headed or wrong-headed, that people have cast throughout human history. Where people have said, this is is the ideal society, this is what we long for, this is what we hope for. Uh, There was one writer on on these kinds of utopian visions that said... uh, There are socialist and capitalist and monarchical and democratic and anarchist and ecological and feminist and patriarchal and egalitarian and hierarchical and racist and left-wing and right-wing and reformist and free love and nuclear family and extended family and gay and lesbian and many more utopias. And the point that he was making is that people of every stripe have a longing for a perfect world. Where does that longing come from? Well, C.S. Lewis's answer in The Weight of Glory, he, he says uh, this, quote, 
we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisfaction to it, right? We have this longing. Is there any reason to believe that that longing could ever be fulfilled? And Lewis says, you know, being hungry does not prove we have bread, right? Just because you're hungry doesn't mean you're going to eat. But Lewis goes on to say, I think it may be urged that this misses the point. A man's physical hunger does not prove that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. In the same way, though I do not believe, I wish I did, Lewis says, that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, I think it a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will. You see what Lewis is saying? He, he's saying our universal desire, our universal longing for home, our, our longing for a utopia, our, yong, our longing for Eden it is a signpost for Lewis. Not that we will enjoy Eden, but that Eden does indeed exist. There is an Eden out there. We were made for it. Our longing bears witness to that. We long for Eden. Of course, many of us have given up that dream. Many people believe that the desire for Eden is kind of a child's dream, that life's brutality has beaten that dream out of them. The desire for a utopia, many believe, is just a, it's just a pipe dream. The longing hints at something, right? And the Bible teaches that paradise is real. The Bible holds out the hope that we might one day dwell in it with our Father God. Not merely as, as boarders in a bed and breakfast, right? But as children at home in our Father's house. That's our longing. We live in the Father's house and we long for the Father's presence. Three, the Father disciplines those he loves. Now, the, the word discipline is not a real popular word. <laughs> Why would it be, right? Uh, I mean, it's not discipline. No discipline is pleasant. That's what makes it discipline. That's what the Bible says, too. You know, actually, Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's, that's the way discipline works. In fact, the point of discipline is to provoke change for the better. You know, the, the, the pain of discipline is meant to turn someone from the bad to the good. Anyone who has spent time around addicts uh, uh, knows this is the way life works. I mean, it may seem uh, barbaric, right? Discipline is meant to cause pain, to turn people. But if you spent time around addicts, you, you know that this is the way life works. And, uh, you know, in one sense, we're all addicts, uh, actually. But I, I mean, sort of, uh, if you spend a lot of time in N NA or AA, uh, which I, I have with, with friends and family members, you name it, but something you hear a lot in those circles is that uh, you can't make someone change. Someone has to want to change, and most people have to hit bottom before they change. And what they're saying is that, that, that the pain of behavior, the pain of their behavior has to become worse than the pleasure of their behavior before they're going to be willing to change their behavior. Right? The pain has to become greater than the pleasure. And that's just a basic principle for, for most of us, for the way that we work. We won't change our behavior until the pain of that behavior becomes greater than the pleasure. 
Discipline brings a certain amount of pain that provokes change. Um, you know, if you get an F on a test because you were up late partying instead of studying, and if the pain of that F is greater than the pleasure of partying, the next time you'll stay home and study. Maybe. You might say that, well, failing a test, that's just the natural consequences of that action. And that's true. But again, we, we live in a moral universe. That's the point. There is a God at work in this moral universe. And natural consequences are one type of disciplinary measure that he uses. Leviticus 26 is about discipline. Uh, you, you may have noticed that, that the section of discipline in Leviticus 26 is a lot longer than the section of blessings. The blessings described a kind of return to Eden, a paradise in the promised land. And after God describes those blessings, he begins in with the discipline in verse 14. He says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. Right? If, if, you, if you refuse to obey... If you rebel, then this is what I'm going to do. And then God describes sort of at first general trouble, panic and disease and enemies. And then in verse 18, we hear this. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And God describes drought and, and having no crops. And then verse 21, he says, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And then in verse 22, he describes unleashing wild beasts. And then verse 23, he says, And if by this discipline you are still... Okay, it doesn't say that, but you get the point, right? If you, are, if you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for their sins. See, and then he describes enemies and sword and pestilence. Paradise is coming undone, right? That's what's happening. The paradise God promised that they will obey is, is falling apart all around them. And there's this heightening of trouble. It's like it gets worse each time. It's a little bit more and a little bit more until uh, finally we get to verse, verse 27, where God says, But if in spite of all this you will still not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. And you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And he goes on in verses 30 to 33 to describe exile from the promised land. Exile from Eden once more. And those left in the land, according to 36 and 37, and, and those in exile, in verses 38 and 39, shall alike remain under God's disciplinary hand. And we're bound to ask, why would God do this? Right? I mean, it seems horrible. And we think, you know, why, why doesn't God just tolerate their behavior, right? Why doesn't he just overlook it? I mean, what does God care how I live? Well, the, the truth of the matter is that that's kind of the talk of a, a teenager, right? Not, not a mature adult. <laughs> um, that, that's how many of us acted as teenagers. Maybe, maybe you remember, right? Uh, we had a chip on our shoulders, and we, we, we thought that we knew better than our parents, and uh, we thought their rules were dumb, and uh, their discipline was just to be mean. And our trouble is that we're still thinking like teenagers. We see God's discipline as a bad thing. But God's discipline is actually a sure sign of his love. 
It's not evidence to the contrary. Once Israel got to this point, right, they, they had lost the Father's presence as a blessing. God says, verse 30, my soul will abhor you. Verse 31, I will not smell your pleasing aromas. That means don't bring any sacrifices, right? I don't, I don't want to relate to you anymore, right? You, you've, you've, you've gone too far. They've lost the Father's presence as, as blessing, but they actually haven't lost the Father's love. It, there, was a, there was a country song uh, in the 80s. There's something in me that pushes back at the sappiness of the song, right? So you just have to forgive that aspect of it. But there is truth, that there's a truth that it illustrates. And uh, the chorus of that song says, uh, Daddy's hands were soft and kind when I was crying. Uh, Daddy's hands were hard as steel when I'd done wrong. Uh, Daddy's hands were always gentle, but I've come to understand that there was always love in Daddy's hands. And uh, the truth is, most of us don't experience discipline in that way. It's not the way we think about it. Uh, my kids don't always experience discipline in that way because I'm a bad picture of this. Right? Often discipline comes out, as, uh, comes out of exhaustion or frustration or selfish anger, but not from our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father's hands may be hard as steel, but there is love in His hands. Right? The Father disciplines those He loves. That's what Paul says, or that's what the writer of Hebrews says in the New Testament. God practices tough love, right? He, he, he loves his children so much that he disciplines them. God's, God loves you and wants what is really best for you. Now, the question is, what is that, right? What's really best for me? And the answer is, it's him. God wants to give you himself. Notice that the three commands highlighted at the beginning of the chapter. I mean, this chapter comes at the end of all kinds of laws and rules, which we've been looking at for weeks and months, right? But there are three of those commands that are highlighted at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, verses 1 and 2, that the commands uh, do not make idols, keep my Sabbaths, and reverence my sanctuary, right? Those are in the first three verses. Why those three? Right, if you're going to summarize everything that you've said in three laws, right? why pick, do not make idols, keep my Sabbaths, reverence my sanctuary? You know, our tendency as, as Christians uh, is to dismiss those kinds of things as ceremonial and therefore unimportant. We sort of pass over those kinds of laws, just get on to other laws like you know, love your neighbor as yourself. We skip those other things. But that's really a totally wrong way of reading the Old Testament. God focuses on those commandments here and elsewhere because they have to do with how we draw near to our Father, right? We, we draw near to our Father not through idols, but through His name. We draw near to our Father on, on the Sabbath day. We draw near to our Father at the sanctuary. That's what was going on in the Old Testament. Israel drew, drew near to their Father on a, on a holy day in a holy place, calling on His holy name. God wants us to be near Him, the source of joy, the source of pleasure, the source of life. And when we try to manipulate God for our own ends, which was the purpose of idols, when we refuse to spend time with Him, when we treat God's holy place, His home, His meeting place, which is the, the church today, by the way, according to the New Testament, when we treat God's holy place as if it were you know, a backstreet alley or a dirty bathroom to be avoided, God is not honored. And we are forsaking our joy. Right? God disciplines us for our joy. Scriptures are filled with the command to rejoice. You ever notice that? The Bible's always saying, you know, rejoice. Right? Have joy. 
But it's saying specifically, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord as always, Paul says. And again, I say rejoice. You know, our Eden, our, our utopia, our paradise is not ultimately a place, though there is a new creation to come. But Eden is only Eden because God is there. And our longing for Eden, our longing for our home, our longing for paradise, our longing for joy is a longing for the presence of our loving Father. This struck me uh, Friday night. Again, there's a, there's a lot of sentimentality in this sermon, but you, you'll, you'll forgive me. Uh, I could hear Jeremiah was downstairs, and I could hear that it was time for Jay uh, to go to sleep. Deborah was picking him up and uh, bringing him upstairs. And he kept repeating over and over again, Daddy, sleep me. Daddy, sleep me. Right? He wanted me to put him to sleep. And uh, so I stood up, and when Deborah made it up the stairs, she put him in my arms, and Maya immediately snuggled in, and he said, Ah, Daddy. And uh, Deborah said, his, his life is now complete. He's in his daddy's arms. That, that's what we long for, isn't it? We long for the comfort and the peace and the joy of being in the arms of someone who completely loves us. God, God disciplines us when we run from his arms to things that will not satisfy. He disciplines us so that we will run back to him. God disciplines us for our joy. And you may still be thinking as you read through this chapter, well, this is kind of over the top. Discipline, right? This is, this is child abuse, the things that God says he's going to do. Well, well, let me lay aside the fact that unlike earthly fathers, God has supreme authority to do what he sees as best for his people, right? He has supreme authority, unlike earthly fathers. Um, we need to trust in his wisdom and his goodness and his power that he will do what in his infinite wisdom he knows to be best for his children. And in his, his infinite goodness, he desires for his children, right? That's what he's going to do. What he knows is best for his children, what he desires best for his children. But lay those aside for a minute and go back to what we said earlier. You know, people, uh, you and me, right, in our stubbornness, in our pride, right, we often need to hit rock bottom before we will change. And notice God says, this is, he says, this is what I will do. And then he describes what he will do. And then he says, if you still won't lesson, listen, I'm going to discipline you again. And then he says, if you still won't listen, I will keep disciplining you. And if you continue to refuse to turn, right, then I will refuse to show kindness. And if in spite of all this, you still won't listen, then I will discipline you once again. You see what God is doing is giving his people every opportunity to turn back to him. He's saying, turn back to me. I love you, right? Come and be with me. Come and find blessing in life and joy. And he gives them an opportunity and they still won't listen. And so he disciplines them again and they still won't listen. Now, if you know the story, these threats actually came true. It seems God's discipline didn't work the way we think it should have. His people remained stubborn. <laughs> and he sent in uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to... Take them into exile. He besieged the city for a number of, of days, and actually the people did, even, even to the point of eating their children, we're told, because they were besieged in this city for so long they had no food. So God exiled his people. He took them out of Israel for 70 years so that the land could enjoy its rest. Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. 
We mentioned that natural consequences, right, is one part, one type of discipline, but I, I think it's fair to say on some level, right, most of the trouble that we undergo is disciplinary. Now, not, right, that, that doesn't mean that if you're suffering is your fault, it's not what I'm saying, but that all suffering and trouble in the life of God's people is meant to shape us and mold us. Right? All the trouble that we experience, which we experience trouble, right? everyone undergoes difficulty. That trouble, that difficulty is meant to shape and mold us. Again, I'm not saying that suffering is your fault, right? but that God uses suffering. He uses difficulty in our lives to shape and mold us. This was even true of Jesus, which is how we know it's not always our fault, right? Because if it was true of Jesus and he was perfect, right? It wasn't his fault. Um, Hebrews tells us Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. That's, that's a really interesting phrase. You can think about that for hours, right? It's Hebrews 5 verse 8. Jesus was fully God and fully man, right? And so as the God-man, Jesus was sinless. He never disobeyed his father. He always did what was right. As God, Jesus knew everything, but as man, he learned things like the rest of us through experience. And Jesus learned what real obedience was through the trials and the struggles that he faced in life. What troubles are you going through? How do you think about those troubles? What if you saw them as gifts from a God who loves you? What if you began to look at difficulty as God's means of drawing me closer to himself, as an opportunity for God to show me more of his grace. Yes, even as the Father's discipline. I mean, there, there's stubbornness and sin left in each of us. God wants to root that out because he loves us, because he wants us to know true joy in himself. And so he is at work in our lives. Trouble is an opportunity to stop and say, God is at work here. God loves me. God wants me to turn to him in the midst of this. In fact, uh, when we lived in Philadelphia, you know, you, Philadelphia, many of the streets in Philly are very, very small. They weren't made for cars. They were made for horse and buggies, right, or, or people. And the, these tiny little streets. And so you'd park on the sidewalk. <coughs> you'd pull up on the sidewalk, and that's where you would park. And uh, it frequently happened to us, and I mean frequently happened to us, that uh, I would come out in the morning and the side view mirror of my car had been knocked off because the, the, the alley's so small, you know, somebody's barreling down the alley and they, they hit, and they just keep driving, right? They never stop. And uh, that, that probably happened to me like eight or nine times without exaggeration. If I wanted to exaggerate, I'd say a dozen times, maybe two dozen, right? It happened all the time. And it would normally happen when I was already frustrated. It was kind of funny. Uh, you know, I'd be upset about something. I'd be overwhelmed with life. And I'd walk out of class or I'd walk out of my house and I'd get to my car and I'd see that the side view mirror had been knocked off. And you would think that that would make me angrier. But you know, every time, it always remind. I don't know why, it always reminded me that God was in control here, right? God loves me. God's getting my attention. And I would just, yeah, my father loves me. I don't know why, De Deborah used to think I was nuts because I'd come home and be like, guess what happened? Our side view mirror got knocked off again. She, you know, she'd just roll her eyes at me and, you know, smile. But, I, I, you know, I, for, for whatever reason, in God's providence and his love, I took that as a sign of his love, right? God's at work here. God's at work. And I need to trust him. 
I need to not be anxious. There are 400 cars on this block, right? And mine's the only one without a side view mirror, right? Why is that? Because my father loves me. He loves me. Trouble is an opportunity to stop and say, God's at work here. God loves me. God wants me to turn to him in the midst of this. And then we turn. We turn to him. We cry out to him. We trust in him. Which brings us to our final point. Uh, We live in the Father's house. We long for the Father's presence. The Father disciplines those he loves. Shorter than the last point. Repentance is always an option. You know, when trouble happens, we we respond in all kinds of ways. We may break down in hopelessness or despair and anger. Uh, We may try to work harder to fix life in self-reliance, like, oh man, things aren't going well, I just need to double down and make it work. Uh, We may start looking around for a savior, right, looking to other people to fix our problems, right? Or we may start looking around to lay blame on someone or something. We fall into this victim mentality, like, my life isn't going well because of this person. We respond in all kinds of ways when trouble happens, but the right way. And the right way is to turn to our Father. The right way is in repentance, humility. Again, I'm not saying trouble is all your fault, but but all of our difficulties show us our need, show us our weakness. In a a sense, also, trouble are, are a foretaste of sort of the great trouble to come, a foretaste of judgment. In that sense, all trouble is a warning You know, one day God's going to judge the world. Uh, It it will be no more discipline, no more warning, only blessing for his people and condemnation for those who reject him. Discipline is God's way of saying, look, this path that you're on is a path of self-destruction. If you continue down this path, it's eventually going to lead to your doom. Stop. Turn. Turn back to me. Trouble now reminds us of a greater trouble to come. And when you realize that you're far from God, when you realize the the distance between you and Him, when you realize your weakness, your impotence, when you realize the reality of the impending judgment, right? the only response to all those things is is repentance. It's turning to our Father. We see our state. We see our condition. We see our heart. We we own that up before God. That's what repentance is. It's seeing seeing yourself for who you are, owning that up before your Father, Confessing it to him, acknowledging, God, this is, this is me. This is my heart. This is where I am. Turning to him. This was the case for Israel, right? Verses 40, and, and, uh, 40 to 42 in our passage. God says, but, right, all this trouble. And then he says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their circumcised, uncircumcised heart is humbled and they can make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. See, God promises that no matter how bad things have gotten, no matter what sin we've fallen into, no matter what we've done or said or thought, no matter how much of a mess we've made in life, at any point we can turn to him. We can humble ourselves. We can acknowledge our sin. And God will bring a blessing instead of a curse. That is that God himself will draw near to us rather than push us away. That's what God means when he talks about remembering his covenant, right? He remembers his promises. And what was the great covenant promise? The great covenant promises was that he would be our God and we would be his people. God is saying, I'm never going to forget that. No matter what you do, I'm going to remember my promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. 
We long for God's presence. The problem is other desires tend to get in the way and we run from him instead of to him. And so God disciplines those he loves. He, he wants us to know true joy in his presence. So he slowly weans us off the inordinate pleasures of this life, those things that distract us. And when we find ourselves under his disciplinary hand, uh, repentance is always an option. We can turn to him at any moment. He will remember his promise that he would be our God and we would be his people. Now, you might be thinking, okay, stepping back, right? This is Leviticus 26. These are God's promises to his people. Israel, you know, 4,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, whatever. Um, that's all well and good, right? But these promises were given to them. How can I know that God will receive me when I turn to him? That's a good question. You know, all humanity, starting with Adam, has fallen under God's disciplinary hand. Death itself is God's judgment on sin. It's a reminder for us of his judgment. All that comes from death is a part of God's discipline. All sickness, all disease, all strife, right? Every physical, emotional, relational, social breakdown, it's all a part of God's discipline. And it's all a call to repentance. God chose Israel, right, as his people, but they didn't fare much better than Adam did, right? They rebelled, and they too were exiled from God's presence, this time not out of paradise, but out of the promised land. You see, all of us, for whatever reason, apparently are just too stubborn to stick close to our Father. And so in order to deal with this once and for all, of course, God sent his Son, Jesus. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, walking with his Father, praying to his Father, obeying his Father. Now remember we said that the condition of entering the new Eden was, was just that, was obedience. Well, Jesus did that. He obeyed. But he falls under God's discipline anyway for us. In fact, Jesus falls under the full and complete wrath of God. I mean, God says in Leviticus 26, 44, that he would not abhor Israel so utterly as to destroy them. But on the cross, that's exactly what happened. Jesus was utterly forsaken by his father. The full brunt of God's wrath was poured out on his son. That, that wasn't discipline. This was no warning of judgment to come. This was judgment. Jesus was rejected by his Father on the cross for our sake. And then Jesus rose. The Bible teaches he didn't stay dead. He, he, he died on the cross. He was buried in the grave. But then he rose from the dead. God accepted his Son again. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. He brought Jesus up into heaven. And the Father took Jesus to his side and seated him at his right hand. He drew him near, drew him close, and sat him down. See, on the one hand, Jesus was rejected because of our sin, but he was accepted because of his own righteousness and received into the Father's presence. And when we trust in him, when we look to Jesus in faith, his rejection becomes our rejection, his judgment our judgment, so that we were judged in him, which means our judgment has been dealt with, and his acceptance becomes our acceptance, so that we are accepted by the Father in him. The New Testament teaches that this message is good news, both for Jews and for Greeks, because all who call on the name of Jesus are accepted by the Father. All who call uh, on the name of Jesus have, have the presence of Jesus with us now. He's walking with us in our midst by his Spirit. We have an Eden in our hearts, so to speak. And all who call on the name of Jesus have the hope of dwelling with the Father in the new creation. 
See, we long for God's presence, for the Father's presence. The problem is other desires get in the way, and so God disciplines those he loves. Jesus was forsaken for us, so God would never leave us or forsake us, but he will discipline us because he loves us, because he wants to be near us. And of course, the, 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 the response for us is, is repentance, to turn at any point, to turn to him through Jesus, to find the Father's embrace. And life will be complete because we are in our Father's arms. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to, to see the depth of your love, even in the midst of the difficulty of life. We're, we, we, we so often... Uh, see the difficulty and run from you. But the difficulty is meant to draw us near. Help us to see the depth of your love in the midst of the difficulties. And help us to draw near to you, Father. To know that you love us, that you care for us, you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will remember your promises, that you will be our God and we would be your people. Help us to draw near. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.